This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Thursday the 7th of October 2021. And Norman, we've heard a lot in the last few months about vaccine passports and mandates in workplaces for people who need to be vaccinated in order to go there. That's been a source of debate. But another thing that seems to be shifting at the state level is the rules around people who are vaccinated or unvaccinated when it comes to things things like how long you need to quarantine for or whether someone's considered a close contact. What does this mean for our journey forward with this? You know, we keep hearing about COVID normal. Like, what does this mean for the new COVID normal? Well, I think it's a bit of it is experimentation where we're not quite sure what the right thing to do is. So in New South Wales, they're moving towards a seven-day quarantine or isolation for people who are infected but who are vaccinated rather than 14 days. The science around that is a bit iffy because, sure, if you are vaccinated, you've got maybe half to 60, depending on how long ago it was, you've got certainly got a significantly reduced chance of being infected. But if you're infected, as we said the other day, you've got pretty much the same chance of passing it on, at least after two or three months. So it's not quite clear there. But but then the risks of passing it on, if you've got a highly immunised community, are lower. So, So in other words, you don't need to be quite so risk-averse, so the theory goes. And it may be that you don't have to be so risk-averse about who comes into the country and how long they quarantine for. Hence, home quarantine for maybe seven days rather than for two weeks. Also, the judicious use of rapid antigen testing, which on more than one occasion, so that you have a fairly accurate idea when somebody's actively infectious. Um, A couple of nights ago, I interviewed an expert in Denmark uh, about the Danish situation. And the the Danes have really progressively dismantled almost everything. They, They still do a little bit of contact tracing. They still do isolation of people who are positive, but it's not quite so fierce as it was. And their testing rates aren't as high as they were they're fairly relaxed because they're seeing uh, low and maybe even declining hospitalizations and people in ICU. And when I asked him about children, because children are the unvaccinated group in the community, apart from vulnerable populations who are not at high vaccination levels, they're going to catch it. And Denmark has just kind of accepted that children will catch this disease and acquire their own immunity and say, yeah, the odd child will become sick. And they seem quite not blasé about it, but quite relaxed about it. I'm not quite sure how relaxed we will be, but we can't stay locked up forever. How long have they been doing that for? Is it Do we have enough time to know whether that's a safe strategy longer term? No, and, and Denmark is nervous about the forthcoming winter and what that's going to do and being back at school and have they got their ventilation right. They're aware that they may see an uptick in winter like they did last winter with a large number of cases, but they say they won't do anything about that unless hospitalizations go up a lot and the hospital system is under stress. And that's what you're going to see here as well. So they're going to move things fairly carefully, but in a risk-adjusted way, um, and watch the hospitalizations. And if they start upticking significantly, particularly in children, they're going to have to do something about it. And as we said on yesterday's 
CoronaCast on the Osage advice, the independent group that's giving advice on this. You know, you've got to do the sort of things that Victoria is doing in particular in schools, ventilation, HEPA filters, masks and what have you. And what's astounded me is um, the opposition to masks in children. It, it dumbfounds me that there are some experts in this area who think we shouldn't be asking children to wear masks in primary school. What's the reasoning behind that? Do they think that they're going to be harmful or just useless? I'm not entirely sure how consistent their argument is. I think it's um, an undue imposition. How can you expect a young kid to wear a mask? It's not going to be effective because it'll fall off. And what can you do in the playground anyway? There are all sorts of things like that, imposing them on children. It seems like a fairly small thing to ask, even if it's done imperfectly, to protect our kids. As the owner of two small, well, less small than they used to be children, they're pretty gross, but they are good at wearing pants and shoes and hats. Like, adding a mask into the mix doesn't seem that far beyond what we already ask young kids to do. Yeah, and if you get a high percentage of kids, it doesn't have to be 100%, but you get a high percentage of kids doing it, and each one of them is reducing the chances of transmission by 60 or 70%, you're, you're, you're doing some good work, particularly in a well-ventilated environment. So in answer to your original question, what you're going to see unfurl, it's going to be hard to be specific about it today, but what you're going to see unfurl is risk-adjusted policies where because such a high proportion of the population, we'll have one of the highest vaccinated populations in the world. And we probably can take a few risks on that and watch what happens closely, but not open up suddenly, not, um, you know, not a sudden freedom day. Do what Denmark's done. Do it slowly and progressively, a staged opening, and watch what happens. And on that, we have some exclusive news to bring to the CoronaCast audience about vaccines. Um, Norman, they're effective. Well, really? Have we? Oh, I've never heard it before <laughs> on uh, on CoronaCast. This is really, you know, just hold your breath here because you've just never heard it before on CoronaCast. Cutting edge stuff here. The other day we talked about um, another exclusive from, the, from Britain on their data on vaccine effectiveness. And here's another exclusive, world first, a study in The Lancet from the United States, from an organisation called Kaiser Permanente, which is what's called a health maintenance organisation where they have good health records and all their members. Bottom line, they found very similar findings to the British, which is the risk of infections was reduced by about 70-odd percent. That did decline after a few months, down to about 53% after a few months. But the good news is that vaccine effectiveness against hospital admissions was maintained at a high level at over 90%. So... Here's the world exclusive. We were right on CoronaCast that while the risk of getting infection reduced over time, you still got good protection against hospitalisation, which reduces the pressure a little on booster shots. So seriously, what we're seeing here is the same kinds of results coming from... Seriously? Is it serious? Is anything serious on this show? The same kinds of results coming from different populations around the world, which is really like science, right? Confirming what's been done before replicating those results. Different environment, different type of study, different population. And when you get the same results, you can be pretty confident. And Norman, you mentioned before that we're going to end up having one of the highest vaccination coverages in the world, which is good because Sabella has written in saying, am I crazy? Everyone seems to have forgotten that 70% of the eligible population is only 56% of the total Australian population. And likewise, 80% is only actually 64% of the total Australian population. Sabella, you're right. 
the only reason you get a bit of comfort here is that 12 to 15 year olds are getting immunized at quite a high level. So it's not going to be too far off where you're going to have 85, 90% of 12 years plus. And it was nearly 85% of 12 years plus that Denmark opened up on, which was I think about 74, 75% of the total population. So you've got that right. The thing in New South Wales is they're opening up on Monday, a few days after they've reached 70%. And actually, they'll be well on the way in New South Wales to 80% by the time they open up at 70%. So you're on a rapid rise to full immunisation, which mitigates the risk. I don't think they knew that when they said we're going to open up significantly at 70%, but that's the way it's going to be. It's almost going to be at 80% by the time they open up at 70%, if that's not too too mind-twisting. Nice and clear. And that's vaccines, but let's talk about antiviral medications for a second. We were talking about antivirals in general, and you made the comment, Norman, that Tamiflu, which is an anti-influenza drug, is a bit average. Well, Christine would like to differ. She was so ill with the flu, she was completely bedridden, apart from dragging herself to the toilet and back to bed. After taking Tamiflu tablets for two days, she was amazing. And if only all drugs worked so effectively. So I'm really really glad to hear that, Christine. The trouble with the clinical trial was, first of all, it took them forever to give up their raw data when people wanted to examine it. And when they did give up the raw data from the clinical trial, there really wasn't that much difference between placebo and the active drug. And it was a really tiny effect, a matter of half a day's improvement with Tamiflu, which is what they suspected. You got great benefit, but you might have been better in two days anyway. And so that's the story with Tamiflu, is that when they actually critically examined it, it took them forever to get the data from the drug company. It really was pretty disappointing. Oh, well, hopefully the coronavirus antivirals are more decisive than that in their results. Let's hope. But, you know, the Merck drug was stopped after in a small, relatively small trial of 700 people. So we just need to wait and see what happens when it's out in the real world. Stopped because it was looking so promising. Yes, but. And your etymology club, Tegan, is taking off. Oh, it's it's growing. Uh, I think maybe, Norman, we could just ditch, ditch this podcast and just start a new podcast about the etymology of drug names, which if I can't listen to it as a listener, I want to make it. Um, someone is asking, how does the eagle, evil spike vax fit into my etymology? Well, it's interesting because there's actually different processes for the generic drug name, which has to have certain indicators of how the drug might or might not work in terms of its function in the body and the commercial names for the drug which have to be kind of catchy but also unique. Yep so Pfizer the generic name is BNT162B2 isn't that snappy? Oh so snappy but of course they call it Cominati and I'm not really sure how that's sort of snappy maybe it kind of sums up this idea of being like commonality. And Justin asks, what's the etymology and relationship between cortisol and cortisone? Well, cortisol is the hormone in your body, not the drug. Cortisone is the drug. But the drug is um, is like a human-made version of what naturally occurs in the body. Because am I right, Norman, in thinking uh, from my quick Googling, and you're actually a doctor, that if you have high levels of cortisol, which is it's like a, a stress hormone, it actually, it, it basically what it, one of the things it does is suppress the parts of your body that aren't critical so that you can do fight or flight. But what that means in a, in a drug sense is that it suppresses your immune system, which is what it's sometimes used for in, in treating disease. 
Well, it is a stress hormone and has very complicated effects on the body, including the immune system. Um, it also mobilizes blood sugar. There's lots of things that cortisol does. And, that, and cortisone is more potent than cortisol in suppressing inflammation, the immune system itself. And that's mostly why you take cortisone to, to suppress inflammation. It doesn't change the course of pretty much any disease, but it does suppress an overactive immune system. And of course, Justin says, is the first rule of etymology club that you have to talk about etymology club? Yes, correct. You have to talk about it. You have to write about it. You have to think and sing about it. It's all about the words. And we'll call it etymology club zone or club acillin. <laughs> depending on what we want this function to be on that day. Yeah, yeah, but thanks, Justin. Your questions, your comments, your suggestions for other things we should talk about other than the coronavirus, go to abc.net.au slash coronacast. Yeah, I'm all invigorated now that we're talking about something really exciting like etym etymology. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> see you then. <laughs> <laughs>